Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We're talking about something that could be a little bit concerning for the world today, and that is the growing relationship between two superpowers, Russia, China. We're going to delve into the history of the relationship because it's not always been very, very warm, uh, but it seems to be today. Keith, what is the status right now of the relationship? So the relationship is warm um, because both countries feel themselves being isolated. So it's really a marriage of convenience, if you like. So on the one hand, you've got Russia, which, of course, is subject to international sanctions. They've invaded Crimea. Um, and from Australia's point of view, of course, they also shot down the Malaysian aircraft, killing Australians. Australia is very much involved in that international inquiry. Um, and so we are very hostile towards Russia at the moment. So you've got Russia that is under pressure from the Western world. And then at the same time, you've got China, which is embroiled in a trade war with the United States. So these are two countries that are coming together in a marriage of convenience. They're not natural allies. They're actually natural enemies. But they have come together again. The the Russians, for example, have just conducted the largest military exercise in 30 years. And some of the Chinese have been involved in that exercise. That's what's getting people worried, that these two countries, uh, from an American point of view, these two rogue countries almost, are actually getting closer and closer. Whereas when you look back at their history, it's actually one of suspicion and invasion. Well, let's go back and look at the history because aren't they both um, socialist by nature? Well, that's another part of the, the history. So you get the Russian Revolution 1917, right, which shouldn't have taken place in Russia, right? So Karl Marx said, I have discovered an iron law of history and that countries evolve through various stages. They become industrialised. You have a working class and it's the working class that then becomes the, the, the socialist paradise, right? Um, 1917, and he predicted the first revolution would be in Germany, which was obviously an industrial society. Um, but in fact, in 1917, the first country to go communist was the Tsarist Russia, which was poor, backward and agrarian. It wasn't industrialised at all. Um, and so we end up then with all sorts of theoretical problems because remember the Marxists see themselves as scientific in their prediction about how history evolves. I'm not, obviously not a Marxist. I don't accept Marxist thinking. Um, neither, by the way, did Lenin, in fact, by bringing on a revolution prematurely. The same thing then occurred after World War II with, Chair, with Chairman Mao leader of the Communist Party, China was backward and um, agrarian farming, was not industrialised and also had this sort of socialist revolution. Now, the Russians tried to tell the Chinese how to behave. The Chinese resented that, but nonetheless, we had election campaigns in Australia and elsewhere based on the idea that there is this red menace beginning in Berlin, going all the way through to Beijing which looked very frightening on the, uh, on a map if you saw the maps being drawn up in the 1950s, this huge red menace. So it's the old Soviet Union, a bit of Eastern Europe, and, of course, China. What people didn't realise was the seething passions between Russia and China. They were not natural allies. Now, one of the reasons why they're not natural allies is they just didn't get along well. They were supposed to be communist brothers, 
but in fact they were not. Um, and in 1961, you get this split between China and the Soviet Union. It took quite a while for political commentators in the West to understand what was going on. So we still have people running campaigns in Australia talking about the, the communist bloc. In the same way, by the way, you get people talking about the Arab world as this, you know, or this Islamic world, which is this uh, very conspiratorial, aggressive group. I don't accept that reasoning for that block either because when you look more deeply, you see all sorts of rhythms, uh, schisms and rifts between them. So you get a split in 1961. And then, uh, so you end up there and there were these two countries actually competing with each other. Instead of being close allies, they're actually competing to try to win friends and influence people in Africa and elsewhere. Um, they both get involved in the struggle in Vietnam, which the Americans, of course, have been in since 1954 after the defeat of the French. Vietnam, what in, I was in Vietnam during the war, and, of course, what it struck me was all of the heroes in Vietnam all the way back to the Trung sisters, AD 54, um, all the heroes have been Vietnamese people who had fought the Chinese. So remember, we again had Western politicians talking about this red menace, etc. unified. No, no, it's not. The Vietnamese hate the Chinese. Ho Chi Minh was, he wanted the Chinese assistance, but didn't want the Chinese to be too comfortable in Vietnam because he realised getting rid of the French was quite easy, getting rid of the Americans... And, of course, the Australians would be quite easy. The real problem was not to allow China to get a foothold in Vietnam. And, of course, the same with the Russians. He, didn't want the, he wanted assistance from the Russians, but he didn't want the Russians to overstay their welcome. So we get all these, these schisms within the communist bloc, which I find fascinating. But So that's one issue. So you, you've really got the, uh, the Soviet Union, which collapses in 91, then goes down this path of capitalism, which uh, so it's not really nominally communist at all. China is is nominally con communist, but in fact, of course, has adopted, you know, com communism with Chinese features is the slogan now. So they have reinvented communism yet again, very different from Chairman Mao. So Deng Xiaoping has said it doesn't matter what colour the cat is, providing it catches mice. In other words, he's a pragmatist, providing you get economic growth. That's what we're about. So. You then end up then with these two allies really not being too allied even during the period of the communist era, but then they're not necessarily allies now. Um, but if you go even further back into their history, you'll find um, even more anxiety or anger. Um, it's interesting to note that um, you get out of what is, was part of China, Mongolia, the Golden Horde, what was that, 800 years ago, that swept out of Mongolia, went through Russia and ended up in the Middle East. And as, as you know, Genghis Khan and all the rest of it. So you get this, this uh, fear that the Russians have because Russia is still the largest land mass in the world. Okay, they've lost all their Islamic territories in the south, like Kazakhstan, but they've still got a huge land mass. I'm one of the few people I've met who's ever flown across the Soviet Union twice in one day. Um, How? So, well, because I needed to go to a conference at Habarovsk, so that's the Soviet Far East. And so I was then based at a research institute in Perth, Western Australia. I flew to Tokyo on Japanese airlines. That was good. But the Japanese airlines would not land at Habarovsk in the winter because the airfield was completely covered in ice. 
So I then had to fly from Tokyo to Moscow, change airports, and then take an internal Russian flight, an Aeroflot plane, all the way back to Habarovsk. And then when you land on the runway, I'd compared it to landing like a ball bearing running across velvet. The reason being that the Aeroflot planes could not land in the way that Australian planes land. You know, they hit the runway and they bounce. You do that with an old Soviet plane, the wings would fall off. <laughs> so they had these specially trained pilots who could land on a sheet of ice, which was Habarovsk. Wow. So this is the Soviet Far East. This is on the Amur River. Near the Asias. Near China. Yeah. I could have walked over the frozen Amur River from Russia, or Soviet Union, into China. I would have got my head shot off, but you could walk over the ice. The ice was just so thick at that time of the year. Um, so it was an interesting experience, been in, in Habarovsk. Um, so what is interesting is, is that you get this vast landmass still with Russia, even though they've lost their Islamic territories down in the south. So the Russians feel very vulnerable about their rear end, right? So you've got Moscow half a day away, right, 11 hours at, you know, behind you in Habarovsk. Um, most of the people who live in Russia live west of the Euros. That's Moscow, Petersburg, all the way down into the Euros. So you've got this vast landmass, which is empty. And, and so the Russians are always worried about, the, you know, their rear end and the fact the Chinese will start to eat them from the rear end. Oh. <laughs> it's the only way to put it. And some of the territory is disputed. So at the time when the China China was in this warlord era, when it was in chaos, you know, the British had acquired Hong Kong, etc. the Russians acquired some of this territory that I was on. So around the Amur River, because they were saying, look, that the uh, Chinese emperor is, is, cannot control all their country. We might as well take a bit of real estate. The British are doing so. You've got this international co- colony in, in Shanghai. Let's take a bit for ourselves in northern China, which is the eastern end of, of the old Tsarist Empire in Russia. So you've, you've got a lot of, you've got these long historical um, antagonisms. One is the fear of this horde of Chinese or Mongolians sweeping into the Middle East. Uh, there was a very famous conversation that Leonid Brezhnev, the Soviet leader, had with Mrs. Thatcher. And uh, <clears throat> he was warning about China to Mrs. Thatcher. And he said to Mrs. Thatcher, you must remember, we Russians are the only people who stand between you and the hordes of Chinese. And he said it was so much force that Mrs. Thatcher was lost for words. Wow. And that's so embedded in that Russian mentality. These people are going to attack us through our rear. Don't trust the Chinese. Don't trust the Chinese. So then how does this friendship come about now? Is it because Trump is pushing everyone away exactly. or the Chinese, you know? Yeah, that, that's the reason. Not just Trump, but it, would have, it began, uh, of course, with the end of the, the Cold War in 19... You get the collapse of, of um, the Berlin Wall in November 1989 and Mikhail Gorbachev, my Club of Rome colleague, avoided a bloodbath in East Germany. So when Herr Honecker, the East German leader, was saying, you've got to call out the Russian troops to shoot the demonstrators. They're pulling down the Berlin Wall. And Mikhail Gorbachev said, no, 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 the game's up. Um, 
uh, by the way, a young KGB official who's in East Germany who rang through to Moscow to get instructions to kill people, stop these demonstrators, was the young uh, Vladimir Putin. And that so traumatised him that when he rang head office, there was nobody there to pick up the phone. This is, you know, one of the, the really big events of his life. So here he is, surrounded by demonstrators whom he can't kill because he's not being authorised to do so. Now, he escaped. He was fine. The demonstrators were quite peaceful, but it really traumatised him. And he made it quite clear when he became the Russian leader, never again would the Russians be intimidated. This is Putin as the strong man of Russia. So you get the collapse of the Berlin Wall. Now, under the uh, post-World uh, War II agreement, um, you, you get the ability of um, the four countries to occupy Germany. So the British, the French and the Americans controlled West Germany. The Russians were in East Germany. So um, they, and the, by the way, the British are still in West Germany. The war war's over. The British are still there, as are the Americans. Um, the Soviets uh, said, we will withdraw our troops from East Germany to enable the two Germanys to come together. But we will, um, we will need a commitment by you not to push NATO further east. And George Bush Sr. honoured that promise. But President Clinton did not. And Clinton is the one that began to cause the problems with the expansion of NATO going further and further east, feeding the paranoia of the Russians. I see. And so that, that kicks off the isolation of Russia. Yep. Um, so they distrust the West. They distrust the West. And now China at the moment is not distrusting of the West, but certainly distrusting of America considering the trade war. That's right. And the Chinese have their own reasons for paranoia because deep in their tribal memory, they can remember the warlord period when the country fell into chaos and that was how the foreign powers were able to pick up bits of real estate of, in China. So the Chinese also need to have a good, strong leader. And they've also, we need to look at this at a later program, the whole question of the social credit system, which, um, you know, how they are monitoring their people. Facial recognition, cashless society, this is, so, but, you know, it's all to do with Chinese wanting to control Chinese society, hold it all together. So you've really got these two dictators now, Putin, and then you've got President Xi in China, they feel isolated by the West, so they're actually coming together. It's a marriage of convenience. They don't necessarily like each other, but they're being forced together, I think wrongly, by the diplomacy of the West. So then how is it being viewed by a country like America? Well, America really can't make up its mind, yeah. right? This is the problem, right? They really, you know, the Americans are conducting a trade war against, um, uh, against China, some people, by the way, are saying, look, it's not a trade war, it's an economic war. This is part of the final era of the struggle between China and the United States. So we really ought to explore that as well as a separate issue. We're heading towards the crunch. So someone like Steve Bannon would say, look, we're not just arguing over trade. We're arguing over economic supremacy. We've got to beat the Chinese. And, and most economists say that, you know, given another 20 years, the China will be the number one economy in the world. And so that's probably playing into the psyche of everyone involved. Including the Americans. So the Chinese are saying, look, it's our turn in the sun. But you've got the Americans, or at least those thinking Americans, like Trump, or better still, Bannon, who are saying, if we're not careful, the Chinese are going to overrun us. 
But don't they have to f- walk a fine line, like Australia does as well, because China has so many people and such a huge market for all of us countries, and you can get things done so cheaply and manufactured cho- so cheaply there. It, isn't it a no-brainer to be friends with China in well, some gonna, capacity? I agree. And I, you know, I'm a great believer in the McDonald's Golden Arches theory of world peace. Countries that trade together don't go to war against each other. So countries that sell McDonald's don't go to war against each other. Oh, is that the way it works? Yeah. I didn't know that. So, Where did that thought process come oh, from? Oh, it's been going around for about 30 years. It, it, it's a bit tacky if you're a political scientist, so we talk. <laughs> we, we call it the liberal democratic theory of world peace. Same idea. But basically, once you become a democracy, you open your country up to international trade, trade knits the world together. And then you become friends with people. And you become friends with people. And countries would much rather trade than invade, right? So... This is how the world is being knitted together. But you've also got hardliners who are saying, no, we've got a showdown that's required with China. And, of course, China is improving its relations with Russia. Russia has an, econ- has an economy about the size of Australia's. At the height of the Cold War, it's probably the size of Canada. So it's actually gone down. It's now the size of Australia's, except that, you know, they're, what, 200 million people. We're only 25 million. So the Russians have, have got a... Um, a fairly small economy, but big ambition, big military ambition. Whereas the Chinese need raw materials and they therefore want to get those raw materials out of eastern Russia. Recipe for disaster worldwide though, isn't it? And link it in with climate change and it's easier to get those raw materials, where I was, get easier to get the raw materials out of the Soviet Far East. You have permafrost in that end of Russia. It's so cold. So if you die... During the winter, we can't bury you until the spring because you can't dig into the ground, right? Uh, But now, thanks to climate change, the permafrost is beginning to melt. Now, this has its environmental consequences because a lot of methane is going to be liberated and go into the atmosphere. But it also means that we'd be able to dig up whatever the resources are under that permafrost and the Chinese want to get in there. Dr Keith, so interesting. (laughs) We're going to have to do those other topics. We always say that and then we might not necessarily do it. So we will do it, how the Chinese are surveilling their own people. People, yeah, good. Next week. Indeed. Thank you. Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Liv Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.